asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. In recent weeks, we've really focused on some ways that listeners can boost their income. Uh, so whether that's through starting your own side business and growing your network like Hala talked about, or when we talked with local realtor Alan about diving into investing in real estate, well, what better way to test the waters? While you are away, your home could also earn extra income. That's right. Your empty space could be an Airbnb while you're traveling, because that's all you need to become an Airbnb host. It's a lot easier than you think, and you don't need to Airbnb your entire house. You could just host your extra spare room. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives. But those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilbur Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to How to Money. I'm Joel. I'm Matt. And today, we're answering your listener questions. You know what, man? We've got five listener questions to get to this week. We've got a question about our car buying philosophy. We're going to talk about whether it makes sense to buy new, buy used, even lease. Oh, <laughs> I think you can tell by my inflection there <laughs> that that is not something that we're going to recommend, but you just got to stick around to find out. We are also going to talk about budgeting on a variable income. Uh, that's something I've been doing now for like 15 years. And another listener, he is building out a space to Airbnb and he was asking for some tips. So I'm looking forward to answering those three questions plus a few others. But real quick, before we get to all that, dude, I, uh, I just before we hit record, I scored a sweet curb alert. Okay. Do you have any guesses as to uh, what I happened to come across? A pony. I would have passed the pony up because there are additional costs associated. That's, I that's Honestly, true. there's additional costs associated with anything pretty much that you pick up on the all side right, of let, the road. Let me make one more guess. What, one more guess. Okay. A, a camping trailer. 
Oh, that would that'd be pretty sweet. Wouldn't that be cool? That, like an airstream. It's maybe it's dirty. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about one of those like collapsible ones. No one's giving away an airstream. Yeah, probably, yeah. But. Like you're talking about the ones that that are flat and then they pop yeah, up once yeah. you get to the place. I would consider picking one of those up, uh, assuming I had a, a trailer uh, hitch on the van or whatever. No, I picked up a ten foot long green slide. Like a playground slide for the kids to, to go down. Okay. This is something that Kate and I had talked about getting for a while to add on to the playhouse at our old house. But even here at the new place, there is space for us to kind of create a little platform there amongst the trees uh, to kind of bolt that to a little platform, have the kids slide down that thing. But one of the reasons, though, that we'd ever gotten one of those is they're expensive. These things cost between like 300 bucks. I think the one I looked it up, the one that I picked up, is a $400 slide. Really? That's not counting shipping. And all I need to do is just pull out the pressure washer, baby, blast that thing off, bolt it to some two-by-fours, and we're good to go. Uh, <laughs> and so I am extremely happy with my find this afternoon. Man, it just goes to show you that one person's trash is another person's I treasure. I know! Well, they knew it was somebody else's treasure because they had it propped up uh, one end of it was sitting on top of the fire hydrant they knew that somebody was going to see that throw it in the back of their van which it didn't even fit in the van like half of it was sticking out (laughs) (laughs) in order for me to get that thing home but i wanted to mention that as well i was just so surprised as we were moving out of our house and trying to unload a bunch of stuff there's a lot of stuff that you don't sell on facebook marketplace but you also don't want to throw it away it kind of falls in that no man's land Mm -hmm. where it's not worth selling but you just feel wasteful were you to throw it away and we put so much stuff out on the street and you would have been shocked at the, I mean, just the vast quantity of stuff, A, that we put out there, but just the different things that people saw the potential in as well. And so it makes me realize that, that I'm not alone with my uh, curb alert hunting. Yeah. I'm always amazed that in our, even our Facebook buy nothing group, the, the things that people post on there and that like 10 people immediately stick their digital hand up and they're like, no, me, me, me. I'll, I'll take it. it. I'll take it. And I'm it. like, what? I would never want that. But then every once in a while I'm like, oh yeah, I want that. <laughs> and nice. so I guess, uh, yeah, everyone's got, uh, got different metrics by which they judge value. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. If, uh, well, but, congr- congratulations on your new slide. Thank you. Dude, I'm so, I know you're, you're probably like, yeah, seems totally lame, dude. No, <laughs> your kids I'm, will I'm, enjoy it. I'm super pumped. Your kids are going to play on it as well when they come over. And if I can get it up anytime soon, I will definitely snap a pic uh, to, to share with our listeners. There we go. All right, let's move on, Matt. Let's uh, mention the beer that we're having on the show. This one is an Imperial Stout by Nunya, uh, which is a Norwegian brewery. Oh, is that how you say it? It's not. So it's written out. Nogne. Yeah. N-O-G-N-E. Come on, I know my home country's okay. pronunciation. <laughs> no, I don't really. I just like I, I pulled up a YouTube clip. Go- Googled it to hear the like the brewer or whatever give his pronunciation, and okay. I think it's Nunya. But Nunya, uh, Nunya business, Nunya business. That's what, yeah, that's what I was about to say. <laughs> All right, well, we will give our thoughts on this one at the end of the episode. But for now, let's get on to uh, let's move on to listener questions. And if you have a question you would love Matt and I to tackle, we would love to hear it. Just go to howtomoney.com/slash/ask. There are simple instructions there for you to record your question, send it our way. Hopefully we can take it in the very near future. But Matt, let's get to our first question. And this one is about running a small business and trying to avoid debt. Hey guys, this is Nadia from Atlanta, Georgia. I have a question about how much risk is too much risk to invest in your business. So I actually started a stationary shop, an online stationary shop at the beginning of the pandemic. And this was just born out of my love for all things stationary. It is a hobby that I genuinely enjoy and something that I was able to delve a little bit more into with some of the additional time I had at home. 
So of course, there are months and or seasons where I am making a pretty decent profit and I'm able to pay off all of my expenses that I use on my city credit card for my business. But then there are other seasons where I've invested in bringing in products and new things into the shop. And then those are kind of the low seasons where I am having to pull from my own personal funds to be able to pay off that business credit card. And so, of course, I know that I have to spend money to be able to bring in money, but how much risk is too much of a risk? And then, of course, considering that this is also a hobby of mine, how can I kind of get myself together as it relates to just bringing in profit and then letting that profit leave just as quick as it's coming in? Because, of course, I am continuing to support other business um, owners or small shops that are selling some really cutesy stationery that I really like. All right. Thank you so, so much for answering my question. Thank you so much for all of your efforts with this podcast. It is truly a gift and I look forward to hearing from y'all. Thank you. Joel, you are a gift. Oh, sir. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> Nadia, thank you so much for those kind words. Seriously. What we... would you rather have if you had to choose between me and the new slide? Well, in the moment, I would have chosen the slide because I was really <laughs> excited. But you are the, the gift that keeps on giving, I'm sir. A mainstay in your life. <laughs> you are you are here to stay. Uh, but Nadia, seriously, we, we appreciate A, the question, but B, also you just listening to the show and the kind words. Congrats on launching your own business there over the pandemic. I think that was it was probably a great time to start your own business while you you had some of that downtime. And the great thing about online businesses in particular, they take a lot less overhead. But of course, uh, like you mentioned, you still got to have some inventory on hand. You have to make those purchases. And I'm sure you, uh, your shipping bill isn't cheap either. No, I'm sure it's not. Amazon level uh, shipping bills, but it, it, that's Perhaps. a big part of the cost, I'm sure that Nadia incurs. And, and this industry is one, of course, where, where it does take some money to make money. You got to find the latest and greatest stationery, Nadia. That's kind of what you're in the business of, right? Is in order to sell to your customers, they're looking for this well curated place and they're going to come back to your site if they feel like you're the person who's got their kind of taste in mind. But that can also get out of hand, right? If you order if you order too much. So this is a delicate balance that you're trying to weave, mm-hmm. it seems like, with this business. Or let's say you end up ordering things that your customers aren't necessarily into, and then maybe you have to slash the price and, and, and it cuts into your profit margins. That could be tough. And, and sometimes it can take a couple of years, really, to dial in what it is that your customer base is looking for. And I'm sure you're, you're starting now at this point to make decisions based on the data that you're seeing from what your customers like to buy, and even when they like to buy it, right? Because many different businesses are cyclical in nature. I wonder, I'm, I'm curious to know like what stationary, like what's the busy month for is stationary high season i would think like november would be oh, really? would be a big time like around the holidays i was yeah. gonna say in the spring like okay. around april and may as kids are leaving school i don't know you write notes to teachers or folks send notes to each other yeah. as they're kind of wrapping up the semester but like, i'm sure that kind of thing yeah birthdays and stuff like that happen all the time thank yous happen all the time That's so true. um when was I, the last time know. you wrote a handwritten note to somebody though? much to my shame <laughs> it's been a long time but it is one of those things where i that i see it as such a highly valuable thing oh yeah it's something we it should goes, all do more it of. It goes so far if yeah. you were to actually do that. And so Nadia, actually, she, she didn't even give a, a shout out, but we will reach out to Nadia and maybe we will link to her shop within the show notes for this episode. But Nadia, you're, you're kind of talking about the, the kind of that balance between racking up too many expenses while also trying to, to grow that business. But bottom line, we would love to see you to continue to push the profits within the business, at least for now. And, and remember too, you know, this is a business, not a hobby. You actually said the word hobby, uh, but even that small change in perception can can make a big deal with how it is just how intentional you are uh, and the moves that you make with your business like it feels easier a lot easier to put a hobby on hold 
than it does to put an actual business on hold uh, that you're looking to, to ramp up. But since it sounds like this is still a side hustle for you, what you should be looking to do is just to achieve a reasonable level of scale uh, by reaching some new customers. And so I think funneling profits back into buying more products and, and marketing to reach those ideal customers could help you to, to build your site and to help you to grow your reach more quickly. The other thing I want to mention here too, I was, I'm kind of knocking on you calling it, calling it a hobby, but maybe that was like a Freudian slip. And maybe that's you being honest with yourself. Mm. And I think that's totally... 100% fine if you've got this hobby that you really enjoy and maybe you don't necessarily want to ramp it up. Uh, I think it's 100% okay for you to have the stationary hobby. I also think it's 100% okay for you to look to, to grow this thing like you would an actual business, regardless of what path you choose, as long as you're, you're being honest with yourself uh, and you're not calling it, for instance, a business, even though you're treating it like a hobby and it's making uh, perhaps no money. Yeah. Calling things by their proper name can have a big impact on the way you feel about mm -hmm. that thing, whether it's your business or your hobby. And totally. if you're calling what you want to be a business a hobby, then that's going to have implications in how you treat it and then ultimately in the profits. Yeah. And I like what you said or, there, Matt, about funneling. Or vice versa as well, right? Because, I mean, if it's uh, a hobby and she starts calling it a business, it, that could potentially suck the joy out totally. of it. Because totally. Because she's kind of treating it as this com like, as a different entity compared to how it is that she, she truly wants to interact with yeah, it. Yeah, it could take something that is a labor of love as just kind of a, a super fun thing in your life and it can turn it into drudgery. Ex if, totally. if you're thinking about it the wrong way. Exactly. Agreed. Yeah. I love what you said, though. I, and it sounds like what Nadia wants us to be is a business. That's what I'm gathering. I think so. And she wants to grow it. And I like what you said about funneling profits back into the business because that's what the, the Jeff Bezos Amazon model. It's that uh, let's... That's the Starbucks model. Let's find our... <laughs> yeah, let's find our customers. Let's grow this business. And then eventually we can start taking profits out. And I think that that's really smart, especially while uh, Nadia has a job that's paying the bills. And, you know, it's it's always good. Let's talk about reserves for a second, because it's always good to have money in reserves to be building that up. We don't want her to use all her profit, let's say from June, and to plow it back into buying more products to list on the site in July, even though we do want her to be building up the business. We want you to slowly at the same time, Nadia, build up that reserve with each successful month so that you never find yourself tapping into your personal funds. Mm -hmm. That's what we want you to avoid basically from here into the future. Uh, we, we do draw a salary, Matt and I do, from the podcast earnings that we get. But it took us a while to get to that point. We had jobs for years while we were building this business, but we also saved a decent chunk every single month to be able to sustain us during the leaner months. And we were also saving for, for other bigger goals that we wanted the business to be able to achieve, like being able to hire someone to help us do more cool stuff in the near future. And so I think it's an important thing for you to have a business savings account and to be uh, every time you've got a killer month, an outsized month of performance, to be funneling some of that money, not just back into the business, not just into buying more product and doing more marketing, but to actually be saving money for those months, maybe that might not be as successful <laughs> so that you can- continue to build your business even when sales are slow. Yeah, basically what we're trying to do is for you to to draw a clear line between your personal finances here uh, as well as the business. Uh, and you know, you asked if you're getting too risky with with how it is that you're purchasing inventory. 
the great thing is that you you really aren't doing anything terribly risky here. You've started something that is actually bringing in some money now, which is crazy exciting. And it also has this huge upside potential, uh, all while you've got this regular income uh, coming from your full-time job. On the other hand, let's say uh, if you asked us about quitting your day job to go all in, now that would be a little bit more risky. Uh, but with hard work, with some smart planning, I think you might be there just in a year or two down the road if this was something that you were wanting to pursue uh, full-time. But going back to the headspace that you find yourself in as you are thinking about this, and if you are looking to increase your profits, make sure that you are treating this like a business, not as a hobby. And I think that that mindset shift will honestly answer a lot of questions for you because you're asking about, well, supporting some other makers, some other creators online who are, are selling different products. You will then be able to hopefully look at those purchases through the lens of a small business owner. Does this make sense? Is this going to be profitable? Will people buy this uh, buy this product? Those are all the kind of questions that we hope that you will be asking yourself. Yeah, for sure. And Matt, I would point Nadia too to an episode we did a few months ago with Shannon Weinstein. Uh, that was about taxes, but she, oh, yeah. she talked a whole lot about how starting a small business while you're gainfully employed full-time, how that can actually be a benefit to you tax-wise. So Nadia, we'd recommend you go back and listen to that because there are a lot of uh, nuggets in there that can actually totally. help you save money uh, when it comes to the IRS and, and what you owe the federal government. So go back and check in on that one because it's nice to get a tax benefit from the business that you're you're running. Exactly. Well, what's super cool about that is that, e let's say, let's again, let's flip the script and say that she's thinking about this and only wants to pursue the stationary shop as a hobby, right? Well, she was talking about how she has a business credit card. So that means she has an EIN, right? An employment identification number, which means that this is a legitimate business. And so even if she, in, in her headspace, she's only treating it like a hobby, that doesn't mean that the IRS isn't looking at her uh, as a fully fledged business. Uh, and so, yeah, the ability to deduct some of those expenses, that is absolutely going to help her out down the line when it comes to her finances. Yeah. Nadia is a, is, has turned into a butterfly at this point. And even though she might see herself still as a caterpillar, Matt, the IRS sees her as a butterfly. So <laughs> that's uh, true. <laughs> so Nadia, we wish you the best uh, of luck as you continue to grow this thing. And we hope you have fun doing it. All right, Matt, let's uh, get to a couple more questions, including one about our car buying philosophy. We'll, we'll tackle that and more right after this break. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. They are committed to high ethical standards and even had to pass a rigorous exam before they could become a CFP professional. They offer financial planning and services that take a more comprehensive view of your financial and personal circumstances and are customized for your needs. Certified financial planner professionals can offer advice on a wide range of issues like reviewing your investment portfolio's allocation, handling an inheritance, rolling over a company retirement plan, building education savings, and so much more. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. I'm guessing that a lot of listeners are starting to solidify their summer travel plans. We always like to get the families together, Matt, for a week yeah, at the we beach do. every single summer. We've already got that trip to St. Simon's on the calendar. Pumped for that. But sometimes those vacations get expensive. So what better way to offset some of those costs than to have your home earning some money while you're away? That's right. Why let it sit empty when it could be earning extra income? It's the financially smart thing to do. 
So think it through. Maybe you've got some extra space in your home, or maybe you have an entire house to host, or maybe you're just going on vacation and your home is sitting empty. In every case, you can Airbnb it. You already have the space, so it won't be a huge adjustment. I mean, the way I see it, if you're not using your space, you have two options. You can let it just sit there empty, or you do some optimizing and make some money off it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. And now a word from the show sponsors at Betterment. Do you want your money to dream big? Do you want your money to be a total self-starter? Are you annoyed that your money doesn't work hard enough? Don't worry. Betterment is here to help. Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Their automated technology is built to help maximize returns, meaning when you invest with Betterment, your money can auto-adjust as you get closer to your goal. Rebalance if your portfolio gets too far out of line and your dividends are automatically reinvested. That can increase the potential for compound returns. In other words, your money is breaking a sweat while you can be breaking bread. You'll never picture your money the same way again. Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. Spring cleaning is kind of an annual rite of passage. We've all got to do it, minimize the junk that we have in our house. Emily and I, we just cleaned our closets out. It took hours, but it was so worth it. Now we've only got stuff in there that we love, and it's easier to find everything too. And so, you know, while cleaning your closets is helpful, well, there's something else you can do for your family this spring. Shopping for life insurance with Policy Genius, for example, is a really important part of your financial planning for the year. That's right. Yeah. And here is the thing that's important to remember, because you might be thinking you don't need to check out Policy Genius because you've got a policy through work. But even if you have a life insurance policy through your job, it may not offer you enough protection for your family's needs. And it may not follow you if you leave your job. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Policy Genius works for you, not the insurance companies, and that means they don't have an incentive to recommend one insurer over another, so you can trust their guidance. Save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. All right, we are back and we're taking listener questions. Let's get to one that has to do with the second largest item on our monthly budgets, transportation. How to money. It's your friend Jesse from Rochester. What's up, guys? I'm getting a lot of questions recently about cars, specifically new versus used versus leasing, what the best options are, how to compare prices, what people should do. And uh, I have my thoughts on it, but I'm curious to hear what you guys think and how you would advise the how to money nation. Thanks, guys. All right, Matt, it's, it's not often that we get a question from someone who already knows the answer. <laughs> or a question from someone who we actually know, right? who yeah. we're friends with. Almost everybody are random listeners who we love, even though we don't know them. But this is somebody that we love and know. Mm-hmm. And, and so Jesse, yeah, he's a fellow finance nerd. He writes over at The Best Interest. He podcasts by that name too. And Jesse, thanks so much for this question. He sent us some shirts uh, last couple months ago. That's right. I think it's comfortable. Uh, I look very good in it. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. And I don't pull off many things, but thank you, Jesse, for, for making my wardrobe a little nicer. 
sir, with yeah. that shirt. And uh, But there's a lot to cover in this question, Matt, so let's get into it. Because our car buying philosophy, we can't sum it up in just a few words. There's, there's really a lot that we have to dig into. And I, I want to say this, too. I think even smart folks can maybe have different opinions on what the right answer is here. And I, I put right in quotation marks because right. yep. it, it, it's so much of this comes down to things other than money. But we're going to give you know our best assessment because our, our friend J.L. Collins, you know, he came on the show and he talked about why he bought a brand new car. And I know some people in the personal finance community would just have a, a, a conniption fit because they think that that's absurd and no one should ever do that. But I don't think that's the case. And I think JL had a perfectly good reason for why he bought a new car. I think it can make sense in some scenarios, especially if you're willing to commit to owning that car for at least 10 years. I even Mm -hmm. wrote an article on our website about when buying a new car makes sense. We'll link to that as well in the show notes. But, you know, other people promote extreme frugality when it comes to that car purchase. And you know what, Matt, I think I in particular probably tend to lean towards that side of the spectrum Mm -hmm. uh, myself. Yeah, you definitely do. Um, And sort of going back to what you were saying about this being like the right, like a right or wrong answer. It's sort of like someone saying that there is a right number of kids to have. It just depends on so many things. It depends on what it is that you value and what you're looking for. I thought two and a half was the right answer. Two and a half is the average, but it is, <laughs> it is honestly, I think it's less than that at this point. It probably time. is. I think it's like 1.8 or something I think you're like right. that. <laughs> um, but generally speaking, the happy medium that you'll hear uh, a lot of folks in the space, in the personal finance space to recommend is to buy a two to three year old car. That's not terrible advice. The main chunk of depreciation happens within that time period. And so buying, let's say, a three-year-old car could save you 40% off the sticker price. I think typically you lose 10% just by driving the car off the lot, another 10% every year for the first five years. This is, of course, at least within a normal used car environment, which we haven't experienced for a couple of years. But this also allows you to drive a car that typically needs very little in maintenance costs if it's only got thirty to 40,000 miles on it. Uh, and so this is going to be a solid choice for many frugal folks who are paying attention to how much they're spending on their transportation. If you buy that gently used car, you drive it for at least five years, this is going to be a reasonable financial move. You're going to, you know, you're doing the, the car thing better than most folks if you, if you take this path. Uh, but we are partial to buying even older cars. And the reason is because you'll, you'll save even more. Personally, I like saving money by buying a vehicle. So Hal, our van, we bought when it was five years old. But Joel, you like going even older. Yeah. I mean, I think five years old is is a good move. Like you said, Matt, you've taken, you've, you've gotten most of the depreciation out of the way. You're making more of a money savvy move. But I think when, when you look at the numbers, buying an even older car can make even more sense for lots of folks, right? Um, used cars obviously have been going up in value over the last couple of years. That is an anomaly. It's not going to continue to happen. But it's true that I think buying an even older car holds up when we look at the numbers today or a couple of years ago or two years from now. And so something like buying a 10-year-old car, I think makes more sense for lots of folks because it comes with a lower sticker price, lower upfront cost. And then the repair bills aren't nearly as much as most people assume they're going to be on, on an older car. And that's the biggest thing is people are like, I don't want my car to be in the shop once a month. Uh, and so a 10-year-old car, if this, if, things, if this thing is a decade old, that's what's going to happen to me. I don't want to be put in that position. Well, the numbers just don't bear that out. And because when you look, according to Consumer Reports, the average annual cost of maintenance on a five-year-old car is $205. Well, a 10-year-old car is going to cost you $430 a year on average. And so, yeah, that's 200 bucks more. But 
when you factor in that that small amount of additional maintenance, it's really a pittance every single year compared to the initial price tag, uh, the much smaller initial price tag you're going to be faced with when you make that purchase in the first place. And so if you want to keep more money uh, either in your savings account or allocate more towards investments and just to kind of have more flexibility with your money, I think a 10-year-old car is actually kind of the sweet spot for a lot of folks who prize frugality uh, more than they prize having a nice looking car. Yeah, the reality uh, is that 225 bucks, that's not a lot of money. No. I mean, like it, when you're looking at the average car loan, that's like a third of what a single month's payment would be. So I think it's less of the dollars and it's more about what that cost represents, right? Uh, because what it does, it, it does represent you being told no. <laughs> it, it means that at some point, yeah, maybe your car is going to break down uh, and it, it, it represents inconvenience. And I think because of that, it looms larger than the actual dollar amounts yeah. uh, prove out. Yeah, it feels more like an irrational fear, kind of like when it's definitely more emotional. Yeah, when we hear people the, the dollars and cents talk about the reasons they don't want to become a landlord, it's like, well, what about those three a.m. phone calls with the leaky toilets and blah blah blah? It's like I've never had one of those. Literally, and I've never had one of those I'm, ever. I'm not saying it's not possible, but I'm saying that is an emotional block to mm-hmm. something that could be massively beneficial. And you're letting one small what if question get in the way of something that it, it could be a huge benefit to your ability to pursue financial freedom. Yeah. And plus, I mean, the fact is with Uber and Lyft, we have the ability to get where we need to without much inconvenience, hardly at all. Um, And oftentimes folks who are visiting the garage once a month, it's oftentimes, I think, because they haven't done a great job researching a good mechanic. And and I I think if you can get that figured out and you can go somewhere where you know that you're being taken care of, then that's going to be a problem that you rarely have to deal with. I think that's a really important point, too, because when we're talking about buying an older car, you have to be even more careful. And so it's easier to buy a two or three-year-old car and it's it's harder to make a mistake. But when you're buying a 10-year-old car, you have to pay even more close attention to the kind of car you're getting. Mm-hmm. You want to pay more attention to the brand for reliability, uh, looking at a, a site like Consumer Reports or JD Power to kind of see, well, how reliable is this car? Because the make and model is going to matter even more when you're talking about something that's, that's that much older. You also, like you said, Matt, you want to get that car inspected by a mechanic before you buy it. Because even if it's a reliable car, you want to make sure that this particular one is in good working order for That's you right. too. But yeah, when you're talking about potential savings in the 10K plus range, you know, older cars are worth a very long look for most people. Totally. Our minivan cost us $5,000 a few years ago. It's a 2006 with 170,000 miles on it. Has it been perfect? No. It's had some issues that we've had to get uh, fixed along it's the way. personality. Yeah. Is it gorgeous? No. It's it's kind of weird looking. No, dude, I would say that it's actually really, like, the condition of the paint on your van is actually in great shape. It yeah. looks, I mean, it's got a nice shine to it. Maybe dude. it's just the powder blue color where I feel like I'm, I stick out like a sore thumb when I drive that thing it around. It does feel like Jim Carrey's suit on Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> yes. A little bit. A Def- little bit. Definitely over there putting out the vibes. But you know what? The cool thing is, if you lean into it and you lean into it hard, nobody cares. And most people just assume that you're really, really confident about it. And so I try to lean in. But What if I had a bright orange? fan. <laughs> See, that would be perfect. Jeff Daniels fan. I, I think we need to do that. Oh, man, that'd be awesome. I, I can, I'll paint your car this weekend. Okay. Uh, but yeah, w- while it's not necessarily the most beautiful thing, our main concern is that it's reliable, that it's saving us money. And for the most part, we treat our vehicles as point A to point B transportation. We just want to save as much money as possible in order to funnel our dollars towards things that we care about 
more. And so, yeah, that potentially could change if we decide to buy a Rivian someday or something like that, Matt. <laughs> but for, for the most part, that's how we feel about cars, at least at this present moment. Once Rivian starts making a seven passenger van, uh, I'm going <laughs> yes. to seriously start looking oh at it. Oh my gosh. If we get an electric <laughs> minivan, I'm in. Well, everything we're talking about here, these financial impacts, One something I wanted to mention, like we were talking about the number of kids to have 1.8. That's actually, I think that's the same number of vehicles on average that the U.S. household has in their driveway or in their garage. And so most houses have at least two vehicles. And so everything that we're discussing here, uh, the impacts are going to be felt twofold. And so if that is you, it is, I think, worth paying even closer attention to this conversation. Uh, so it, it really does come down to the total cost of ownership, not just looking at the sticker price, but also the actual cost of repairs. Uh, we actually talked about this recently in episode 527, uh, but we talked about the secondary costs of every purchase matter more than we like to think. I kind of hinted at that when you mentioned the pony mm-hmm. at, the t- <laughs> at the top of the episode. But your decision to uh, as to what kind of car you're going to buy will likely come down to a whole lot more than just money. Because if money were the only consideration, you know, a, a four to $5,000 used Honda or used Toyota is going to be the slam dunk decision. Yeah. Uh, but if you're in your car a ton, maybe like, like 10 to 12 hours a week, there's a good chance that you're going to care more about your car uh, offering you some sort of comfort and style. Uh, it is okay if that is you. It is okay if that's what you value. Uh, if you value your car more than Joel does or even more <laughs> than I do, but just make sure that you're making your purchase intentionally, uh, that you're doing it on purpose and that you're not just buying a thirty to $40,000 car just because your, your friends and your coworkers are doing it. The average car payment, it really is something in the $650 a month range. Uh, they typically last for six years. This is what we want you to avoid if it's truly not something that you care all that much about. Yeah, when you think about 650 times six years, you're talking about an awful lot of money and you're talking about you could buy a car that costs a fraction of that. Yes. And yeah. th- and then you might have to worry less about some of that debt that's been lingering because you can pay it off. And then you might have to worry less about not being able to take a vacation because you actually can. And then you might have to, I mean, there's all of these like domino effects, Matt, of spending less money on a car. Most people just assume that they have to upgrade to something like a twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollar car, but they don't realize that the trade-offs they're making when they do that. Yep. Uh, one other thing, Matt, Je- Jesse mentioned leasing in his question. Let's touch on it real quick. It's something that you and I we never really recommend uh, choosing to lease a car. It's it's more of a lifestyle move, we would say. You know, if you know you're the kind of person who values cars a whole lot and you just want a new one every two to three years, leasing is probably the best choice. But it, it doesn't mean that it's a good financial move. It's just right. a, a good move because that's how you treat cars. That's how you think about them. That's how you want to consume them. Exactly. Like it really is like a cons- consumption luxury good at that point. Exactly. Exactly. So it's one of those things where for 99% of folks, avoid it altogether. But for that 1%, go for it. And yeah, uh, again, there are other considerations that we all have to make that go beyond money, right? And so don't just buy a $4,000 car because Matt and Joel told you to do it. But for a lot of folks who prize the idea of financial independence and want to get there sooner rather than later and want more flexibility in their lives, paying less for a car is going to move the needle in a big way on your ability to build wealth more quickly. So Jesse, our friend, thank you so much for the question, man. And and, and we'll actually uh, post a link to one of Jesse these articles in the show notes. He does a really good job uh, addressing the total cost of ownership, which is what you really want to think through. Yeah, that's right. uh, not just the sticker price, like you said, Matt. Yeah, he did, he did a nice deep dive and we will link to that in our show notes. Let's get to our next question. And this one comes from a listener who has an irregular income. How are you supposed to budget when that's the case? 
Hi, how to money. My name is Annie and I live in Orlando, Florida. As I grow my own business, I bartend on the side. There are so many great budgeting tips out there, but I feel like very few pertain to fluid incomes. For example, those that are tip-based or reliant on overtime. Any specific advice for a household with fluid income from month to month? All right, Matt. An- another question from a small business owner yeah, today. I, like it. I appreciate that. I-, I think it's great. And Annie, thank you so much for submitting that one. I, I love the spirit, Matt, uh, of entrepreneurship that kind of seems to be waking in a whole lot of folks right now. Mm-hmm. The kind of realization that it's th- there's not necessarily some abstract job market that you have to jump into, but that you can kind of create your own opportunity. You can become your own boss. More people are doing it, You know, working for yourself, setting your own hours, gaining more flexibility. Mm-hmm. It's something that we're big proponents of. But I, I also want to give one note of caution because you know, while we completely agree that those are some of the benefits you gain when you're self-employed, there are also other trade-offs that you make on, on the downside, right? The, things that you lose when you become self-employed, like actual benefits <laughs> that maybe mm-hmm. your employer used to provide. You're now paying for your own health insurance and you've got to fully fund your own retirement account. And so while we are all about entrepreneurship, the grass isn't always uh, greener on the other side. There are still dry patches that you're going to have to kind of uh, fill in uh, on your own. Yeah, that's true. We don't want to blindly promote this cult of working for yourself. Uh, And of course, One of the downsides to owning your own business is the likelihood that you're going to have some irregular income. And so one of the ways to smooth out those bumps in the road, Annie, is by tweaking your expenses so that you don't find yourself going over budget when you don't have enough income. Back in episode 362, we talked about why it is essential to create a bare bones budget. Uh, We specifically talked about how everyone needs one of these because you could get let go from a job, even if you think you have the most stable position in the world. But bare bones budgets can also be incredibly helpful when it comes to minor life events, like when you're just making slightly less during a particular month. It doesn't have to be a full-blown emergency where you're fired, you know, and in some sort of dramatic fashion. Uh, But essentially what we're talking about here is having some flexibility when it comes to your monthly expenses, like paying rent or paying your mortgage payment. There's not going to be much flexibility there, uh, but there's a wide range of what you could be spending, for instance, on food every single month, right? It it is possible to eat a healthy, balanced meal that's costing you $1 per person per meal. Uh, Or on the other hand, you could spend 10 times that. Uh, And so in the areas where you do have some wiggle room, where you do have some flexibility, uh, it is going to be clutch when it comes to finding some of the different creative ways to reduce your monthly expenses. Yeah. And if people think that $1 per person meals are impossible, Go back and listen to our episode with Leanne Brown earlier. What was it? Earlier this year, I think in January. And she has literally a cookbook where you can eat well on $4 a day. And so it's one of those things where it sounds ridiculous, but it's actually possible. And so, yeah, bare bones budget can help you give you a lot of confidence as you're moving forward, even in a tight month. It can help you cut back on your spending a lot more easily. And then on the other side of the equation, Matt, on the uh, income side, Annie's going to want to even out her income. If you can literally do this, then great. But that's not really possible for many businesses, right? right? Yeah. And and so I'm yeah. sure if Annie, if she could, she would have been like, well, yeah, guys, uh, <laughs> I would love to boost my income, boost how much my business is. But this me. company wants to pay me this much in March, and this company wants to pay me this much in August. There and you go. Yeah. there's no way that I can fix that and get them to pay me over 12 months, of course. And so, yeah, your, your goal should be to artificially do this by simply creating a larger income cushion. And you can accomplish this by having a larger amount of cash stashed away in savings. So for example, let's say 
you used to be a regular W-2 wage earner with a steady paycheck. That's when a three to six months uh, worth of savings, that emergency fund worked for you. But now with a more variable income, maybe making that cushion a bit thicker so you have more like six to nine months of expenses is a better move for you. A little more padding you. in your life. Exactly. Yeah. When, when things are more irregular, you want more of a pad. When you have something that's more steady, let's say you're, you're a, a dual income household and you're getting paychecks every two weeks with steady jobs, you can afford to have more like a three month emergency fund. Uh, but yeah, d- determining what that dollar amount is so that you can build up to it during the months where you're more flush with cash. Well, then when those leaner months inevitably arrive, you can rest assured knowing that you'll have enough on hand. It reminds me of the the biblical story, Matt, of Joseph and the Egyptians. And he has this dream about uh, seven years of of plenty and then seven years of famine. And so he's able to basically... You're going Old Testament on this. I am. I am. So he's able to build (laughs) these storehouses to sock away, I think it was was like a seventh of everything that was harvested for uh, for future years, for Mm -hmm. those famine years, to ensure that they didn't run out when times got lean. And that's kind of exactly what Annie needs to do. She needs to go Old Testament with it uh, <laughs> by hoarding some away while things are good so that when things are crappy, she's got money to rely on. Yeah, but you definitely don't want to go full Old Testament. Away. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, she does want to kind of do this on a personal level. Like like essentially the way I see it, I, like we want her to zoom out uh, because if she's only looking at her expenses from week to week or she's living paycheck to paycheck, uh, then it can be difficult to know what direction you're going with your finances. And so we want you to, Andy, we want you to kind of broaden your scope and to look at not just weeks and months, but like months and years. Mm -hmm. It's almost as if you're a pilot. And if so, it's very important for you to understand what all the dials mean. It's really important for you to know how to make the specific maneuvers when you're looking to launch the plane, when you land the plane. I'm not a pilot, so I don't know the right terminology here, <laughs> but it is also... I think you just say Siri, land the plane, and that's how it works now? <laughs> I bet it will, it will, One will of be days. soon. Uh, but you also need to just generally know what direction you should be flying in, because that will have a, a pretty big impact on, okay, is the plane going in the right direction even? You want to be able to simultaneously have sort of like the CEO, I can see the the whole picture kind of mindset, while at the same time, you need to have uh, the nimbleness and the skill to be able to handle the day-to-day stuff. And so kind of what we're talking about here is to is for you to take more of that CEO view of your life, of your finances, where you're able to step back a little bit and not just look at your bills or your expenses isolated within each month, but maybe even look at them uh, within seasons or to even look at these goals and these expenses over the, the course of a full year. We want you to zoom out. So hopefully that gets you pointed in the right direction. Joel, we've got a couple more questions to get to, including one about one of our beloved retirement accounts, the Roth. We'll get to that one plus one other right after this. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. They are committed to high ethical standards and even had to pass a rigorous exam before they could become a CFP professional. They offer financial planning and services that take a more comprehensive view of your financial and personal circumstances and are customized for your needs. Certified financial planner professionals can offer advice on a wide range of issues like reviewing your investment portfolio's allocation, handling an inheritance, rolling over a company retirement plan, building education savings, and so much more. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. 
I'm guessing that a lot of listeners are starting to solidify their summer travel plans. We always like to get the families together, Matt, for a week yeah, at the we beach do. every single summer. We've already got that trip to St. Simons on the calendar. Pumped for that. But sometimes those vacations get expensive. So what better way to offset some of those costs than to have your home earning some money while you're away? That's right. Why let it sit empty when it could be earning extra income? It's the financially smart thing to do. So think it through. Maybe you've got some extra space in your home, or maybe you have an entire house to host, or maybe you're just going on vacation and your home is sitting empty. In every case, you can Airbnb it. You already have the space, so it won't be a huge adjustment. I mean, the way I see it, if you're not using your space, you have two options. You can let it just sit there empty, or you do some optimizing and make some money off it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. If you're listening to this podcast right now and you're a small business owner, listen up. Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're actually choosing you. So focus on super serving your existing customers and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. They do everything from hyper-targeting best fit prospects through campaign optimization. Upswell Marketing's unique approach includes direct mail, search engine marketing, and social media ads, and has fueled more than 10,000 small business success stories. Upswell specializes in developing customized direct response campaigns and is now offering a no-obligation free assessment of your current marketing strategies. Not to mention, new customers also receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. Let's say you've been listening to the podcast and now you're finally ready to start implementing some of the uh, the financial morsels that we're dishing up. Maybe you are trying to save up some more money for a down payment on a house, or maybe there's a big vacation that you have been dying to take. Well, the money app Monarch, they make it so easy to help you to reach your financial goals. That's why the Wall Street Journal, they named it the best app for growing your savings. Monarch is the top rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, collaborate with your partner even. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney. And you won't get spammed either. Monarch features ad-free privacy you can trust. They will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. That's right, man. And after trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. It just makes sense. It works. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash howtomoney. For your extended 30-day free trial, go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney for an extended 30-day free trial. All right, we're back from the break. And Matt, we do have a question about a Roth IRA coming up in just a second. Mm -hmm. But first, we have an interesting question about uh, how to build a house so that it can actually make money on your behalf. Hey, guys. It's Luke in Woodbine, Maryland. My wife and I are in the design phase of building a home likely a 12 to 1400 square foot rancher. We don't have any kids now, but plan to in the future. But in the meantime, we'd like to design one of the rooms to be used as an Airbnb rental or as a place for friends and family to stay. That room would have its own exterior door as well as an interior door that when closed would separate that bedroom and bathroom off from the rest of the living area. 
Are there any good resources or tips that you have from your experience doing Airbnb that would help us in this design process? Thanks so much. All right, Luke is looking to make his new house more Airbnbable, which is a fun word to say. Like Googleable. Uh, <laughs> uh, Luke, first, let's talk about building a home for a second because. Like, I get why people do it, but it is almost always going to be more affordable to buy a home that is already built, especially when we're talking about a home on the, the smaller end of the size spectrum like you're thinking about. I'm not trying to derail your plans here to design and build an awesome house, um, but I would love for you to at least consider looking at homes uh, that are already on the market to see if you could potentially find something that suits your needs. Uh, that will also potentially cost you a lot less money as well. Yeah, the cost of homes has obviously skyrocketed, but the cost of building homes has gone up even more. Yes. And so it's one of those things that uh, it could take you a really long time, especially with what's happening in the supply and labor market for home materials and labor. So Luke, it's one of those things where it, it might be the, in your best interest, or maybe you're doing some of the work yourself, uh, and that's going to help save you some money and make it more feasible to get the project done in a timely manner. But it's something to put on your radar if you are hiring out all the work. This could take a lot longer than you plan, and it could longer. cost more money than you thought it yeah, would. Yeah, wait till it gets his... Uh, his lumber package quote. Uh, he's like, wait, <laughs> right. wait, that was the cost of the, the original cost of the whole house. Or when he's trying to, and uh, now he's just talking about pour the foundation oh, and, yeah. and they're like, wait, concrete, uh, you can get that in three months. And you're like, wait a second, that's going to completely derail the project because yeah, there are legitimate issues in the construction industry right now. Yeah. But hopefully he's thought through all these things and Luke has a total understanding and grasp as to not only the costs, but the, the timeline as well. I hope so. I hope yes. so. But that, I, I think that bears uh, saying though, Matt, I I like what you said. Yeah. Buy, buying a used house as opposed to building a new one makes the most sense for most people. We like used cars. We like used houses. That's right. Well. That's right. Exactly. So uh, let's let's talk about what you want out of that property, and you know whether you're building it or you're buying it from someone else. And we would say that the best way to make money on Airbnb is to have a fully separate space that's either mm -hmm. attached or detached from your primary home. You know wh whether it's an above garage apartment or an ADU or a, a fully separate basement apartment. You know you're going to typically make more money if you opt to rent out a space that is completely separate uh, than if you're just renting out a room. And granted, it, it sounds like you're, you're trying to get the best of both worlds with an exterior and an interior door, but I just want to put that out there uh, because some people maybe don't feel as comfortable if their space isn't necessarily completely separate. If it feels more like you're renting a room, then you're renting a private apartment. That's right. Yeah. And so as you are going through the process of building the home, I think one of the things that's worth mentioning here is how you want to acoustically insulate the space that you are looking to rent. Those are big words, Matthew. Acoustically insulate. And so oftentimes builders, uh, interior walls are typically going to be hollow. That's a cost saving measure uh, because essentially builders are often thinking about thermal insulation, right? And so you put insulation within your exterior walls as you are trying to keep the elements, uh, or specifically, I guess, the temperatures to remain on the inside and the temperatures on the outside to stay out there. But now as you are looking to have guests, as, as you're looking at renters to pay to stay in your space, you want them to have a sense of privacy, right? Like you don't necessarily, like they're going to feel the most comfortable. They're going to leave you the best reviews on Airbnb if they can't hear you over on your side of the house and vice versa. Uh, you don't necessarily want to be hanging out with your partner or your wife or, or have a friend over for dinner 
and have the Airbnb thumping in the background <laughs> where, where, where there's a party going down. Oh, is that that new Kendrick Lamar album? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so the, the way that you do this is through rock wool. Specifically, like you can use fiberglass insulation as well, but rock wool is amazing at reducing the decibels, the noise level coming from uh, the insulated space. So what you're recommending is, Matt, he was talking about a door between the main house and this unit that he'd be renting out. What you're saying is instead of that door, put up some drywall, but put some actual like rock wall insulation in that well, interior wall. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he could definitely do that. But I mean, and then eventually you can take that out and put a door in once right. you convert it back to a single family but unit. But I, I also see the advantage of having an actual door in there, right? Because having flip spaces, if there's a desire, there's there's a, a convenience to not have to go outside. Out, like say it's raining or in the winter, it kind of sucks to have to go outside. Then back inside, the ability to just maybe cut through an interior door. I get that desire. But I guess on that note as well, it's worth splurging a little bit more on a solid core door. So like a solid wood door versus uh, newer, more affordable doors are going to be hollow. And yeah. so in the same way, sound travels really well through air. And so if you did want to have a door there, make, making sure that you are splurging a little bit and, and upgrading to get a solid core door, that could definitely be a way to cut down on noise. But like I, like you said, though, too, I think there is a way that you could potentially design the space so that when the time did come for you to take over that, that separate little apartment, you could potentially uh, just cut out a doorway, pop in a door there, and then you can easily incorporate that space back into your home. But definitely, no matter what, look into rock wool. It's going to cost you maybe like 50% more than fiberglass insulation. Uh, but since we're probably only talking about a, you know, filling a few walls, this is going to go a, a long way in acoustically isolating that space. I'm not going to get into mass loaded vinyl. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to get into isolation tracks. There are all these methods. Like I learned all of this uh, when it came to building out our Airbnb formerly known as the How to Money Studio at our old house. Uh, but we went through all of these measures there. We installed rock wool. We doubled up on drywall. We included acoustic glue or acoustic gel to go in between multiple sheets of drywall. These are all things. These are all measures that you can take within the construction process uh, to make sure that your guests and you have a sense of privacy. Well, and this is going to suit Luca and, and his partner well when they have kids because if that kid starts yelling and screaming or is having a tough time sleeping... There's going to be some insulation factor uh, to prevent you from hearing yep. that young one uh, when that eventually becomes their room. Uh, a couple more things to consider. One are the amenities. You know, you, you might not be building an actual kitchen in there, Luke, uh, but it's important to put in like a small fridge, a microwave and a hot plate because, yeah, I don't know, maybe you can be like off the bathroom just a little bit or something because if folks are coming for longer stays, some of your tenants are going to want the ability to cook their own food and more and more people are booking longer stays these days. So, so not having anything to cook with is going to limit your potential guests and is going to limit their ability or desire to stay for longer periods of time. And it's also important to plan more storage than you think is typically necessary. You know, places to put extra towels or extra blankets, a place to store luggage or to hang up clothes. Those are the kind of things you want to think about when you're building out an Airbnb space. Yeah. And don't forget to check and see what your local municipality rules are when it comes to short-term rentals as well. Uh, they're constantly in flux. Uh, a friend of ours who's got an Airbnb up in Chattanooga, he was thinking about adding another. But it turns out the city isn't accepting any new applications right now. So he'd be <laughs> forced to rent it long-term, uh, at least for the time being, if he purchased something like that. Uh, other cities and counties out there charge ongoing fees and taxes if you decide to participate in the short-term rental economy. Now, that doesn't mean that it can't be lucrative, but it's crucial to go into to this with your eyes wide open. Atlanta recently uh, implemented their short-term rental license. Uh, I think there's a, a really small fee associated with it. 
but you definitely want to know what the rules are so that you can incorporate this as you are uh, as you're planning ahead. Yeah, and it sounds like Luke has an alternate future plan. This Airbnb model is not something that he's planning to do forever, but for some folks who are, well, the rules can change, and it's important yeah. to know that. Well, if the rules change, how are you going to pivot? It's you, you should have a plan B in mind as well. Uh, all right, Matt, let's get to our, our last question of this episode. This one is about taking out contributions that you've made to a retirement account. Hi, Matt and Joel. This is Chris from your hometown of Atlanta. Now, you've mentioned a number of times on your podcast about being able to take out the amount you contributed to a Roth IRA without penalty. The only problem is there doesn't seem to be an easy way to know how much you've contributed. Closest thing I found was some IRS site where you could download transcripts for each year back to 2011 or so and then add them all up. Seemed a bit error prone, and I'm not sure if this even shows uh, anything taken out previously. Here's my question. Is there an easy way to see what the IRS sees as Roth IRA contributions and withdrawals? Love your show. Keep up the good work. I keep encouraging others to tune in. All right. Thank you so much for spreading the word, Chris. We really appreciate it. And it's also really fun to have another question from a listener here in our home city of Atlanta. Two Atlanta questions um, today. But Chris, first let's talk for a second about the flexibility of the Roth, because the fact that you can take out those contributions if you if need be. Uh, this is one of our favorite things about this particular investment account, because it can act as this additional backup to your savings. So for instance, let's say you lost your job uh, or you stumble upon some hard economic times. The money that you've stocked into your Roth IRA is accessible to help you through that rough patch. And so if folks have been steadily contributing to a Roth IRA for a number of years. It's really helpful to know that you've got a decent chunk that you could tap if you need to. That's true. I love that peace of mind. But at the same time, Matt, it is also an option of last resort. It's something that we right. prefer people not to do. Like, don't tap those Roth contributions, if at all possible, because while they're accessible, yes. In most circumstances, we prefer that folks pretend like they're not. Uh, kind of, you know, take a page out of Mr. Rogers and do some make-believe and make it seem like <laughs> you can't actually uh, take take advantage of those funds. But that's because uh, Roth money is working for you in a particularly wonderful tax-advantaged way. And since the ceiling on what you contribute is only $6,000 a year, and the fact is that you'll never be able to, to make up for those contributions that you missed. So if exactly. you pull money out, you can never put it back in. Yes. What's done is done. And you, you can't undo it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So I know it's weird that it's one of our favorite perks <laughs> is that this money is accessible, <laughs> but we also don't want you to use it ever. Uh, but that's our stance. And so we think of it maybe kind of like what's written on the door of a fire extinguisher. Break glass only in case of emergency. The same really is true with Roth dollars. Like, don't touch unless uh, things are uh, really hitting the fan in your life. Yeah, it's kind of like going back to the pilot example with the uh, other question we had. It's great that you've got a parachute under your seat. We hope you don't have to use it, right. but it's really great to know that it's there and that it's going to work well in case you do need to use it. Uh, and so let's talk about how you can know your contribution amount, Chris, because the thing is, you don't actually have to report to the IRS how much you're contributing each year. You certainly can, but there's no requirement. And that's because you fund a Roth IRA with after tax dollars. And so the place that you'll want to turn to know how much you've actually contributed over the years is uh, with your plan administrator. Uh, I know that when I log into my Vanguard account, I can see exactly how much I've contributed to my Roth going back all the way to its inception. I can, uh, you can just kind of filter those options there. Uh, I can also see my complete distribution history as well, if I select that option. And so the best place to find that information is really, uh, you just log in to your account and look it up there. Uh, it is error prone because you 
are kind of calculating it longhand. Like you said, even when you look at the IRS transcripts, uh, it's going to be error prone because you are still sort of adding it up longhand. You're still doing something manually. You're doing the math yourself. Yeah. But uh, at a glance, you should be able to determine just how much in contribution dollars that you have access to. Yeah. So your custodian, they should help you with the record keeping. Even if it's a bit annoying, right? Since you have to piece it all together yourself, they should right. have the numbers in store so that you can perform that basic uh, subtraction, right? And so, yeah, you really don't need to worry about the IRS in this equation because there's nothing you need to submit either when you're making contributions or when you're making a qualified distribution, pulling that money out that you've contributed falls within that category of a qualified distribution. And so that's nice to know, at least from a tax standpoint, that you don't really have to get anyone else involved. But we would say, make sure you're being judicious before you make that withdrawal, Chris, even if that money, even if you have access to it, this really should only be done if you're in like a finances are on fire kind of scenario. Mm-hmm. You you don't want to be willy-nilly pulling, the, pulling those contributions out because over the decades, they're going to do a whole lot of heavy lifting on your behalf, providing you a, a much greater tax-free nest egg in your retirement years. That's right. Chris, additionally, uh, what you could do is just keep up with it yourself. Uh, That's what I do. I keep up with all of the contributions I make to any of my retirement accounts within a spreadsheet. But again, uh, this is a long form way of doing it. There is the chance for there to be some errors. But the good news is that it does not take much work at all. And you always have a running total of your contributions. So that's an option uh, you can consider as well. Joel, Let's uh, go ahead and end this one. Let's get back to the beer for this episode. This was an Imperial Stout. What is the name of this beer? Is it just Strong Dark Ale? I think so. Okay. <laughs> I realize that it's kind of got a minimal uh, minimalist label here going That's on. That's how my Norwegians roll, Matt. But uh, yeah, what were your thoughts on this one? Okay. So I thought it was really good. It was roasty and chocolatey. It was a touch sweet, but it had more of the dark chocolate vibes going on mm-hmm. than the milk chocolate, which I'm always partial to. I actually think this brewery is one of the best European breweries out there. Oh, really? And, yeah. I, I mean, well, I'm, I'm also just partial because <laughs> they're my people. They're, they're Nor- It's a Norwegian brewery, but I, I really like a lot of the beers I've had from them. There's a barley wine that I have fond memories of because of where I got to drink it when I was in Norway. See, that makes all the difference. Yeah. In the world, oh, yeah. I'm pretty sure I've had some other beers before, but I've not had the experience of gazing out upon a fjord <laughs> right. as I was drinking this amazing beer. If you beer. do, you'll give it an extra two stars and yeah. untapped. You you claim your nunya or whatever, <laughs> nugne, and I'll uh, I'll take over the Cantillon spot. There you go. That. Okay. Well, this <laughs> definitely, no, I, I will say this is not Cantillon level, but Cantillon also doesn't make stouts. So this is, uh, this is a really good version of a Norwegian stout. I enjoyed it. It's very it's very classic in its stout-like nature. It's well-balanced, and I thought it was pretty tasty. That's right. This is another example of one of those types of beers that you would never have in the middle of summer, but here we are enjoying it. But I'm glad that you and I got to share this one today. Listeners can head to howtomoney.com where you can find some of the different resources that we may have mentioned during this episode. And Joel, that's going to be it for this one, buddy. Until next time. Best friends out. Best friends out. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. 
Listen to brand new on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.